0: This episode contains spoilers. Please listen responsibly. Hello, everyone. My name is Jason Ramirez, and welcome to episode two of The Hit List, a podcast where me and a guest cross out films from our watch list by watching them. I'm joined today by indie filmmaker, mentor, and friend, James Couchet. Welcome, James. Thank you
1: for being here. Thanks for having me.
0: All right, so James, uh, before we get started, I want to ask you, what are your viewing habits when it comes to streaming services?
1: So I'm not as adventurous as I wish I was. I have maybe a thousand things on my watch list for Netflix alone. Wow. And I do my best to at least once a month watch something I've never seen before, but I do have a bad habit of going to some old standbys and diving really deep into TV.
0: Yeah, I have a very similar... um... I have a very similar habit. For someone that's a filmmaker um, and also still learning how to become a filmmaker, I watch a lot of the same old stuff. And that's the reason why I started this podcast, because I want to like, watch the movies from my list and watch the movies from like my friends' list, just so I can get more inspiration from it.
1: So I feel like I feel like this would be a lot easier, though, if we had almost like... Um, if are you familiar with the, the Turner Classic Movies Wine Club? I'm not. Um, do you mind going over that? Yes. So I'm a fan of Patrick H. Willems, and he just did a video where he got the TCM wine club where it's like they send you 10 bottles of wine and each bottle of wine comes with a movie recommendation for something streaming on Turner Classic Movies and it's it's like kind of like old stuff and new stuff like Marx brothers there's old school romantic comedies there's it, the the breadth of it is really impressive but it's also this great like hey watch this uh, because if left to our own devices, we do tend to gravitate toward what's most familiar. And if anything, it's a, that is a fun way to step outside your comfort zone.
0: There's like the similar there's like a streaming service called Movie and kinda of like the similar aspect, but like they give you like all the older classic movies and it's like, like a thirty day playlist from what I believe. Like each each day has like a new movie to watch that that's recommended for you essentially and that's something that i've I've considered to get however i don't have the money to afford it just yet and there's also like so many streaming services i want to try out first before i try out movie and yeah like some of the tv stuff i've been watching recently have been um like after the office i've been watching community as well i've been watching on hulu before it was on Office. show i love it
1: and i just i just saw the whole thing for the first time and i i almost i kind of wanted to cry when the final episode aired like oh man this yeah, it's just like <laughs> I forgot how great this show was and it's it is probably one of my favorites of all time.
0: I actually watched it while I was in community college and I went even further <laughs> with it because I couldn't find it anywhere online like streaming wise. So I actually like rented or borrowed the the DVDs from the library. So I felt like Ovid in that sense like I was willing to borrow DVDs from the library to watch it at home.
1: That is the most community college thing you could have done. Bravo, sir. <laughs> yeah. I was actually I was actually having a conversation earlier. I wish there was a way for these streaming services to recreate the feeling of walking into a video store and just perusing. Um my I had a I had a way of doing things whenever I, I was a big Hollywood video fan. They had a lot of very kind of like out there stuff, stuff that was surprising. And I would just walk past all the the big new releases because you know I saw that stuff in theaters don't really need to see it again and I would go to the the racks of obscurities and I now understandably I saw a lot of really crappy movies that way <laughs> because but you're always because you're always taking or taking a risk but there are some cases where I stumbled onto things that just absolutely blew my mind uh, and also added, I gained a lot of cool points with the with the staff like I was normally on a first name basis with them just because it's like hey this guy just rented six string samurai like yep yeah, yeah that's me it's like hi guys
0: <laughs> yeah I think the only way we can probably do that right now during quarantine is to like do like a vr headset thing like maybe Netflix could have like a vr headset like app and then you can like walk around in your own home chance like select movies from like different shelves that are like not there that's the closest thing that comes to mind when it comes to that all right. So the two films that we will be discussing today are *Swiss Army Man*, directed by Daniel Kwan and Daniel Schneider. I don't know how to pronounce it. And Daniel Snert. Sh- <laughs> <That, laughs> Hold on. I don't know. How, let, let me see if I can take
1: a crack at this. Uh, I. But they're collectively known as the Daniels. That's what I know. The Daniels. The Daniels. So, let's see here. Shineart. Art? Shiner. Shiner. There. There we go. All right. I'm gonna try it one more time. So,
0: two films we'll be discussing today are *Swiss Army Man*, directed by Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheiner, collectively known as the Daniels, and *Pan's Labyrinth*, directed by Guillermo del Toro. So, *Swiss Army Man* was on James' list. Uh, James, why was this bizarre movie on your list?
1: So, I originally heard about this movie back during its theatrical run. A lot of the the people uh, like on online who are like you know movie analysts and whatnot, who I respect. We're just talking this thing up. It was like, "Oh wow, it's so great it's it's so amazing this it's so strange, and that's what makes it so endearing. but it wasn't playing anywhere near me, so I missed it mm. and then it came to streaming service. It was one of those cases where, oh, cool, add this to my list and then a couple of years go by, and it bounces around all the different streaming platforms and I was recently just going through my list and I saw this and i like, why haven't I not watched this movie yet? What, what has been the holdup? Uh, cause I've been fascinated by Daniel Radcliffe's post Harry Potter movies. Right. Uh, I loved horns. Horns was just amazing WTF of a movie. <laughs> uh, and I really, really, am, uh, later this month, I think guns akimbo is coming to Amazon prime and, I'm not going to sit on that one for years. That just like Daniel Craig with, sorry, Daniel Radcliffe with guns bolted to his hands. That's <laughs> um, just, yeah, he, he makes really, really interesting choices and I got to respect that.
0: I see. So I've also, I also heard of this movie back in like 2016 and I remember seeing an article where like when I, when it first featured in Sundance, there were some audience members who walked out of the theater after like the first few minutes of seeing the, the body Daniel Radcliffe's body character farting out of nowhere. People just, like, walked out. And if I were in the audience and I saw that, I probably would have been one of the people to walk out because I probably wouldn't understand what it was until seeing the whole thing, so. uh,
1: Harry Potter doesn't fart. This is not cool. Yeah, but he's not Harry
0: Potter anymore, so.
1: (laughs) Oh, no, not at all. All right,
0: so did you enjoy this movie?
1: Yes, but it took a second to get my head around it. Um, I remember distinctly watching it, and within moments having to realize, like, okay, this there's nothing realistic about this. Don't approach this with that cynical lens of reality. <laughs> um, you know, the the, with the the minute he uses a farting corpse as a jet ski, it's like I should have just turned that off. <laughs> but and I wonder if I had watched this uh, before the current time, before the world decided to just like you know, become a trash fire. Would I have had an easier time accepting it? But I think what the movie really dug its hooks into me um, about halfway through, when it started to really lean into this strange, almost fairy tale, when any conceit of reality was just thrown out the window, and, you know, what little part of my brain was still holding on, just, like, gave up. Like Like, hanging from a cliff, there was that last finger still holding on for dear life, and then it was just like nope nope i'm done (laughs) let go fall (laughs) fall into fall into it
0: yeah so i actually have um my own interpretation of the movie after watching this whole thing and for one it's just like uh, it's about like a guy teaching a dead body about civilization and life even though he is kind of disenchanted disillusioned by his own life and civilization so my own interpretation of the movie is that it's a satire? It's an independent movie satire of independent movies. In the end of the movie, when like they watch the dead body far away into the sea, each of their reactions is a embodiment of like people's reactions to weird independent movies. So like there's there's one that's like amazement, there's one that's like laughter, and there's one that's like confusion, and then one that said, and like the woman who was essentially stalked, she said, "What the fuck." <laughs> So that's my <laughs> There's your one F bomb. <laughs> there we go. She she literally said that. Like and I was like, oh, and I, I kinda like got that for like the midway for the movie because like I could kind of see like how a lot of the elements you see throughout the film you kinda see in all independent movies or of um coming of age from films, essentially where like when there's like the whole montage of them becoming more friendly to each other and like there's like the, the in the music and the music itself was just also I think a parody because it was just like things that they were saying anyway. I can't remember what this song was saying, but, like, it'll be like, I number
1: water, water from the mouth.
0: I, something that was very strange and they made it more magical through music theory.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, it, it was great because the soundtrack... No, that was a, that's a really good read on it. That. That's a... Like, a, you went to a meta-textual level on that but yeah I, I love the fact that the soundtrack was literally just like the lyrics were about what's happening they did something similar in Black Dynamite where it's it, the music's playing and if you listen to the lyrics they're literally describing what's happening in the scene <laughs> and uh, yeah I I kind of looked at it and maybe maybe it's just the headspace I was in at the time I I saw the meta-textual stuff but I also saw the more overt stuff and how a lot of it was this this guy who, like, first of all, the movie, the, the star of the movie is Paul Dano playing the most Paul Dano role ever. And he's clearly got serious issues even before he finds himself marooned on a deserted island. And... It feels like through teaching the corpse of Daniel Radcliffe about how society works, the world works, is he's almost kind of serving as his own therapist. Like, he's projecting a lot of his own issues, a lot of his own anxieties and pain and fear onto this other person. And in trying to help that, and then he is objectively able to work through it by being kind of almost an outside observer. Yeah,
0: I kind of saw that as well. But, like, I didn't really think of it as, like, a therapist. He's just, like, kind of, like, reflecting upon his own life. And then, like, especially the part when they're, they're in the makeshift bus, essentially. Mm-hmm. And... Then your acolyte like wants to like go up to talk to her, but he doesn't know how. And he says, How come I don't know how to say anything? And he says, Yeah, sometimes you, you don't really know what to say. And honestly, I'm not really that like, good at this stuff. I'm like, Oh, okay, so we're learning more about this character as he's trying to help someone else. Even like in the first part, um, not the first part, but like when they first started interacting with each other, like speaking when he starts speaking to the dead body, he says, um, why, why do you sound retarded? And you realized, oh, I sound exactly like my father. I'm like, oh, okay. So this mm-hmm. this guy's got daddy issues. I see it now.
1: Oh, then you meet his dad and it's like, oh, this guy's a real turd. Uh, oh, yeah. and You hear about his upbringing. Yeah, there's, it, it was interesting because, you know, there's, I, I think pretty much anyone can relate to the idea, the feeling of like feeling worthless, feeling like unwanted. And it's hard to work through that. I think everyone feels that way, but some people, some of us get stuck there. And it seems like Paul Dano's character was, he was really stuck there. And it's strange that by being out in the woods with his imaginary, not imaginary corpse friend, <laughs> uh, it allowed him to work through things that he couldn't work through when he's surrounded by other people. And that because there is the point in the movie where he is surrounded by other people, and suddenly you're reminded like, oh no, the, the world and society is a very callous very uncaring place like it there was so there was this like lack of sympathy toward his situation almost entirely and you know it if anything it was it was jarring because you've gotten to be it's just it's just these two characters who you know you have this daniel radcliffe's corpse is not just he doesn't judge uh paul dano the way that the rest of society would and it kind of made it easier to work through this stuff but the minute he steps back in it's like Suddenly, like, Dano is an outcast, he's weird, he's, you know, treated kind of badly by his father, he's kind of exploited by the media who are just like, all right, we're going to interview you, we don't even know your real name, and... The fact that there was a lot going on there on a textual level and meta level level—it's—it's it's really, I think, is a really successful, really good movie for that. And I was actually pretty amused by uh, the weird Shane Carruth cameo at the end. Uh, did you did you catch that one? Which which one? So at the very end of the movie, you see the coroner walking around saying stuff, and Paul Dano's like, "Hey, do I do I recognize you?" It's like that's Shane Carruth, the guy who directed Primer. Oh, really? It was just this weird, like, and he was in literally, like, a scene. He had, like, three lines, and it was kind of hilarious. Like, oh, God, this, you know, it, 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 this, it felt like a shout-out to all the indie film fans in the audience. Like, you guys will get this. The, the, everybody else will have no idea what's happening.
0: Yeah, I had no idea what happened there either. Because I was like, where, is, where does he know him from? Yeah, that that was like that. I completely missed that, and also because I'm not that big of a fan of indie movies, so I probably wouldn't have gotten that at all.
1: For shame!
0: Yeah, even though I am an independent filmmaker, I'm not that. I'm more into like big budget Hollywood movies, remakes, and everything like that.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you ever want to, if you ever want to twist your brain into a knot, go find Primer and watch it. And if you feel that your your brain is not sufficiently pretzel shaped, then go watch Upstream Color. <laughs> which is the follow-up he did. Yes, yeah, so I've
0: seen Primer. That's like, I actually like that movie and it really confused me.
1: I, I love the diagrams online trying to explain time travel. <laughs> like, okay, so this is how it works and he has to turn this on, now this point, and then his, <laughs> you know, he has to walk away <laughs> and then the fungus forms and you're back in the past and you need to buy shares of Apple in the 90s. It's, it's out there. It's really out there, but it was ballsy.
0: Yeah, that reminds me of like that one episode from Community where... The dean is trying to write write time travel story screenplays. And he says at the end of the show, end of the episode, he's like, time travel is just really hard to write about. I wish this hoodie was a time hoodie. (laughs) Speaking of all this, do you think you should have seen this movie sooner?
1: Yes. Uh, I think I should have seen this movie before the world went straight to hell. (laughs) Because, yeah, like you have to be in the right headspace watching this. And you know, after all that's happened, it was it was actually difficult because my brain was actively resisting getting into that headspace. I think if life was a little bit more a little bit more carefree, then I could have watched this and really enjoyed it. And I did. I ultimately I ultimately did really enjoy it. I think I would have just been able to, you know, get out of that that cynical headspace sooner. I feel like I spent a little bit too much time there and it, it bums me out that I Clearly was missing some great stuff because my brain was pushing back against it. How about you? I liked it enough. <laughs> I could have
0: lived my life without needing to see this movie, honestly.
1: Yeah, it's, it's hardly an essential movie. It was hardly an essential movie for me. Like, I, I enjoyed seeing it. I probably would have enjoyed seeing it in the theater when it came out if I had the opportunity. But it was hardly, it was hardly a life-changing film. But for some people it is. I think maybe for people who might who might struggle with depression and anxiety, uh that's the kind of movie that would really speak to you because, you know, having been there like everybody else. It spoke to that part of me. And in that regard it was actually pretty powerful. Uh and it was also really funny because the magical the the magical multi-utility uh corpse and every time we discover a new thing the corpse can do, it's just it was this weird, like, rush of, this weird rush to see, like, oh, it can, the corpse can do this now, <laughs> and he can use it. It's like, the, oh, God, the, 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 the use of the, the, the boner compass <laughs> was, yeah, that's, that's a stroke of genius, and I think someone should have, somebody should, they should have an Oscar category for that. Like, strangest uh body utility B- the the Boner Compass award for movie ingenuity for cinematic ingenuity <laughs> and it's li- and it's literally it's just literally a bust of of just that you just get you get like a golden Boner Compass uh statue <laughs>
0: Yeah, we spent like this whole time discussing like the symbolism and like the, how do you say, the morality of the story. And we never even discuss the Swiss Army Man essentially. Like why is he called a Swiss Army Man? My favorite tool is when he finds out he can like snap his fingers and create like sparks and he uses it to make fire. Oh, yeah. It just reminded me of uh, Full Metal Alchemist right there. I'm like, oh, there we go. Something I like, for once.
1: <laughs> it's attaching. I, I think that was a lot of it. Like, um, you know, Paul Dano and Daniel Radcliffe were great together. They, they played off each other perfectly. But yeah, like, finding out all the weird powers that the body has um, and how Paul Dano goes about using those powers to stay alive, that was, I think that was the real the real draw. Like, there's there gets emo- it gets very emotional, but it's ridiculously funny. Especially whenever they're exploring all the weird utilities, uh, then the way that Dano uses this this like magical corpse to stay alive in the wilderness. In fact,
0: speaking of like magical corpse, um, that just reminded me of Watchmen, the graphic novel. When there was like a comic within a comic. Did you ever read Watchmen?
1: I have not, but I do know about uh, what is it the uh, the Black Trawler. I think it's the Black Rod. Let me look it up real
0: quick. Uh, Tales of the Black Freighter.
1: There it is. It was neat how the Watchmen TV show did that because they they had comic book movies. Uh, if you have you've seen that show HBO's Watchmen? Yeah,
0: yeah, but I don't remember what you said. Like the comic book movies.
1: Yeah, so when she picks up the videotape. Oh uh, and, yeah 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 yeah. It's like so there there are movies. Uh, really cheap, crappy movies based on comic books in that world. So it's it's neat how they, they built on that, the comic within a comic, where it's a, a TV adaptation of a comic that involves a TV adaptation of the superheroes or of comics within the universe.
0: But back to like the Tales of the Black Friday, because um, if you guys aren't familiar with Watchmen, um, Watchmen's comic within a comic in the comic book, the graphic novel Watchmen, there's a character reading a comic within that comic, um, it's called Tales of the Black Fighter. And it's about this one man who's, like, shipwrecked because um, some pirates took over his ship. And he's, like, the sole survivor of, like, the whole ship. And he uses the dead bodies of the people on the ship to create a raft and also an oar to get back to his... back, get back home, essentially. And when he goes home, he he sees what he thinks is someone attacking a woman. But it's really just a guy on a date with another woman. And, like, when, when they see him, he's he went from, like civilized englishman into like a, a guy using dead bodies as weapons.
1: <laughs> oh god, that's... Frank Frank Miller is a he's a disturbed man. Oh yeah. Yeah. They like I appreciate him. Or was that or was that Alan Moore? I think it was Alan Moore. Yeah, Alan Moore. Yeah. Alan Moore. Alan Moore, also strange, strange man, insane beard. I love it. And now a word from our
0: sponsors. Now back to the
1: show. So Jason, uh your movie was Pan's Labyrinth and that's way older than Swiss Army, man. What took so long?
0: So I became a fan of Guillermo de Toro after watching Prison Peak back in like 2016, back when it came out. And I watched some of his shows on Netflix. There's a show called Troll Hunters on Netflix that I do recommend. It's a kid's show, but like there's a lot of fantasy elements that I do enjoy from the show. And the reason why I had... Pan's Labyrinth on my list is because I want to, like, explore more. I want to, like, see the... I want to see what was so exciting. And the reason why it took so long is because I just was watching other movies at the time. And it, it just, like... It takes me a while to get into movies that are, like, foreign movies. Even though I speak Spanish, my... my I, I was raised in a Spanish-speaking household. I'm more used to watching English um, movies, in a way, American movies. But, like, now I'm trying to, like, get more into, like, foreign movies.
1: I'm gonna slightly date myself. I saw Pan's Labyrinth when it came out in theaters. Mm. And it was the movie where I realized that Guillermo del Toro is not just a good director; he is a legendary director. Because up to that point, I, I saw Blade Two and thought it was really good. I saw the first Hellboy, thought that was really good. But at that, but it was Pan's Labyrinth that where it hit me like, man, this guy, this guy is incredible. Like this, this is just amazing and that would after that i've basically with the exception of um crimson peak i've seen every del toro movie in the theater but the fact that he brought that same pan's labyrinth energy to pretty much everything he did afterward he you know hellboy the golden army pacific rim the shape of water it feels like pan's labyrinth was the point when he kind of like really kind of like became butterfly form or you know <laughs> fine is this uh is this guillermo's final form Or does he have more afterwards? Yeah,
0: and the thing I like about this movie is that I I like these type of movies where, like, the children are, like, exploring both the real world and the fantasy world at the same time. And this movie also came out the same year as The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which I heard that he was actually asked to direct that movie, but he chose to do Pan's Labyrinth instead, which I appreciate him for doing. And, like, both, both movies, Chronicles of Narnia, the first one, and Pan's Labyrinth, explore the same concepts of, like, children, like, going... Through like a war torn world, both of them like around World War Two, and they go to to like the fantasy world to like grow, and only one of those movies is happier than the other.
1: Yeah, they could not have they could not have been more different. But I I remember watching it, and right off the bat, you're you're struck by it's it's a gorgeous film. It is positively gorgeous. Right. The cinematography, production design, the locations. And I love the fantasy aspect of it. I love the fact that we saw it through a, a child's eyes, but it wasn't necessarily a kid's movie at all. It was way, way too violent to be a kid's movie. The, even the villain, um, was, he, was he a general, right? Uh, captain. The captain, he was, it's very rare to see a villain that is so genuinely terrifying as the captain. And that, that was impressive.
0: I found myself, as I was writing notes, Throughout the watching the movie. I wrote like five different comments throughout the movie. The first one was like the captain is rude. The captain is a bastard. The captain is is so violent. And what else? That bastard captain. That coward captain. Like all these like separate moments throughout the film are like, (laughs) oh yeah, this guy. I really don't like I don't think I ever disliked the villain so much as I did the captain. Which means he, the actor, did a very good job of portraying him.
1: It says a lot that he is scarier than the monsters she encounters. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like those monsters are so cool looking, but they are nowhere near as terrifying as this very real world uh, villain. Because yeah, it, Spain, Spain lived under fascism for decades, and when the movie ends and the captain is like shot in the face, which is a really cool and gruesome effect, that. Was just a small victory in a much larger campaign to basically fight back against just this fascist government that was just oppressing the people.
0: Yeah, that's um, that's something to to really like learn history. The thing I love about movies is that you can sometimes learn history alongside it. So like last week. When I was discussing with Albert the Forner. I learned a lot of, like, Irish history about the IRA that I didn't know about. I didn't even know about the IRA existed. And with this one, I didn't even know about the Spanish Civil War or, like, the fascist government that they lived under. So that's that's why I, like, I'm watching these movies. So, like, maybe there's a little history thrown in there on the side as you watch them.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, the cool thing, I mean, not just Del Toro, but could you imagine this? this felt like if... Harry Potter went really, really dark.
0: Which I wish they did.
1: Yeah, like, looking back, like, my favorite uh, Potter movie is the one directed by Alfonso Cuaron. And the reason he took the job is because Del Del Toro shamed him into doing it. (laughs) Like, they offered it to Cuaron, and he's like, I don't want to direct one of these kids' movies. Because up to that point, they were just kids' movies. Del Toro shamed him, like, how arrogant are you? To turn these movies down. You need to make this or I will I will never let you for, live it down. Wow. But seeing stuff like, like Pan's Labyrinth, like, you know, like Shape of Water, like uh, Pacific Rim, it makes me sad that we never got the Del Toro directed Hobbit movies. That, every, every time, every time, it's like, man, you know, this, this could have been amazing and Warner Brothers just found a way to screw it up.
0: Yeah, that's, that's what um, made me more sad. Cause like I I'd seen the Lord of the Rings movies, but I actually read The Hobbit more than once. I actually like read The Hobbit back when I was six years old. And I didn't even know it was connected to Lord of the Rings back then. But like I'll like reread it like every few years. And so when I learned it was becoming a movie, I was excited. And when I saw it, it was like what three four movies? How many movies was it? Uh, it was three. It was three movies. I thought that was like very strange. Like how are you gonna stretch out a short <laughs> short book? And I thought, like, oh, that's how you can do it. With the with money in mind.
1: So there's this thing called the Cimmerillion, and we will mine it for content and just pad these this story out.
0: And like there's also like the unnecessary romantic relationship between the dwarf and the elf. And the <laughs> actress who played the elf, I forgot her name, is it? Inve- Lily, Lily
1: uh, Tomlin? No. Let me look it up real quick. So the the power of IMDB. She was an Ant-Man and Wasp. How am I forgetting her name? she is wasp evangeline
0: lily evangeline okay yes i was right (laughs) so close close yeah so like evangeline lily she like got signed on into the movie with the hope of like not doing like a romantic relationship arc and there was so unfortunately for evangeline and also for everyone else who wanted to see decent movies but yeah like when i looked when i searched like the search it up on wikipedia real quickly I kind of saw like Del Toro was originally attached, and like his departure, I'm like, oh, so we we really could have gotten like a great movie if Del Toro was still on it.
1: So I've gotten to learn a bit more in depth what happened. Del Toro was working on that; and he, they were, they were about to start shooting, and then something happened. Del Toro is like off the project, and they brought back Peter Jackson, and Peter Jackson just had to cobble three gargantuan films together in just a, uh, a span of a couple months, and. If anybody's interested in seeing in depth why those movies are terrible, uh, Lindsay Ellis has a three-part series about The Hobbit and how they screwed over Del Toro, they screwed over Peter Jackson, they screwed over the actors, and they screwed over the New Zealand film industry to make three movies that nobody likes. But I, I love the fact that Del Toro, he wanted to direct Pacific Rim 2. They took it away from him. Oh, man. And as a way of, like, dealing with the grief, he goes and makes The Shape of Water and wins a Best Picture Oscar. That's great. Yeah. Literally every time you take away something that Del Toro starts, it doesn't turn out well. I mean, the the Hellboy reboot and Pacific Rim 2 are not fondly remembered. And... I think a lot you know and you can watch them and you can see like okay you know you see what he brings to the table in his absence
0: yeah definitely and speaking of like his own projects uh, i did discuss troll hunters um briefly have you seen troll hunters do you know about troll hunters
1: um i haven't seen it the only thing i know about it is um i guess there, there's a story from they brought in del toro to come in like help with the editing and he would gleefully delete entire scenes that required hours of manpower to put together and edit, and he would do it cackling like a supervillain. <laughs> it's just like, I, I, I yeah, this guy sounds amazing, <laughs> but yeah, like so you've you've seen it?
0: Yeah, I've seen. Um, there's a, like a whole story. There's like a whole universe attached to it because all it takes place in the same town. It's called the Tales of Arcadia. So like the troll mm-hmm. hunters was the first one. Um, Three below is about the aliens that like gets crashing onto like that town. And the third one is not out yet. It's gonna be based on um, wizards, which were introduced in troll hunters. So I actually like troll hunters, but it was still very much like a kids show. But there were there were like a lot of elements of like fantasy, like you can kind of see um, he brought into it, because like there are elements of horror brought into it. There were villains are like they are like really scary. Like oh, he's about to kill these kids. And one of my favorite things when I was like watching Pan's Labyrinth is the whole adventure aspect that you kind of see in there. And the fact that like the chalk that she uses to create the doorway, there's like a similar magical item that they use in the show to enter the world of like, um of the trolls to enter like the troll world. So yeah, that's, that's like the things I see. I'm like, Oh, they use that. Oh, they use that. And like, there's, I think there's like this emphasis on like using books for like knowledge or whatever, even though books are knowledge, they, emphasize like learning and reading a lot in troll hunters and the creatures that they make in troll hunters you kind of see like some deltor influence in there and also like do you remember like in the labyrinth there's like this huge arc yeah um that arc is like in the first season of troll hunters it's not the same arc but like the villains are trying to like recreate the arc essentially to bring back an evil evil overlord whatever to take over the Earth. So it's just a lot of things that I kind of see, like, influences from Pan's Labyrinth and other, like, Deltaurus, like, work into, like, the show.
1: Yeah, he, that's the cool thing about him. He has, of he's got this very distinct style. You can see it throughout all of his films. And he's made, I mean, he made giant monster movie with Pacific Rim. He made a, a gothic romance with Crimson Peak. He made just this almost '50s sci-fi movie with *The Shape of Water*, and it—you know—no matter what genre, it always feels very Del Toro. Exactly. Um, and one something I've noticed he, with with *Pan's Labyrinth* and also *Shape of Water* is this established kind of like normality is the real villain. In *Pan's Labyrinth*, it's the captain. Who is an authority figure. And in the beginning of the movie, he's kind of viewed as almost benevolent. Like, oh, he's marri- he married her mom. <laughs> yeah. In the shape of water, it's the government and Michael. Oh, God, what's I'm his sure. last name? Michael, yeah. And he is just kind of like he represents the US government. He is the normal, the normal evil. And a lot of the heroes, a lot of the protagonists are kind of oddballs. Uh, they're they children. They're outcasts. They are mutant fish guys, and you you do kind of see that in his most personal films.
0: I might actually like watch some more of his movies. I, I tried watching Shape of Water on demand, but like it was riddled with commercials, so I couldn't watch it just yet.
1: Yeah, wait until you can see that from start to finish. I that was another one I saw in the theater, and yeah, it's it is just gorgeous film. What's what's really funny is um his go-to guy, um Doug Jones. Doug Jones, he played the fawn in Pan's Labyrinth. But the, the thing is he doesn't speak a word of Spanish. He didn't know what anyone was saying to him. He would just kinda like keep to himself and he had to learn all of his lines phonetically and also wear all that makeup and that the the foot gear to create the hooves.
0: Yeah, I, I read that as well on Wikipedia and but like still the he was still voiced over with another voice actor, but the voice actor was able to use like his like pronunciation to better say the words essentially. So props to Doug Jones for like doing his best to actually learn it. Yeah. but essentially it was just like overdubbed.
1: I feel bad for him because like he was dubbed over in almost everything. It wasn't until Star Trek Discovery that we got to hear his real voice. He's
0: like almost Eric. I didn't even know until like the until like after doing research before I start recording today is that he played the fawn and the the monster thing inside, like, the hallway. I forgot the name. Oh, the eyeball.
1: The all the eyeball thing. Yeah, the eyeball thing. He played oh both of them, God. and I didn't even know it. They're like, how could you know
0: that, honestly?
1: The man's incredible. Go, going back to the way the movie looks, because uh, I, I, I loves me some cinematography, it says a lot that Guillermo just continued working with that DP forever, and now that guy is the guy shooting the John Wick movies. Really? Yeah, so the John Wick movies, uh, when the sequels rolled around and they had more money, one of the first things they did was they hired this dude. That's why the first movie looks good, but then the sequels just look otherworldly. Right yeah I,
0: I noticed that but I didn't know that was why because I thought the first one is intentionally they looked like that they're like, yeah, yeah the, the second two they look really better story could have been better, but it looks really nice
1: Oh yeah, and they became that, that was the minute that the movie s- stopped feeling like reality and became like nope this is this is fantasy this is this almost inhabits the same space as the movie wanted but uh yeah, it, like everything about Pan's labyrinth just it, it hit it all it all worked. It was all fantastic, and that, like, I almost felt bad. Like, oh, Swiss Army Man, it's it's not terribly essential. Pan's Labyrinth is essential. Uh, it is if you love movies of any kind, uh, you should watch it. If you can't handle it because subtitles, then learn to read faster because it's that good. Or learn Spanish. Or learn Spanish. <laughs> Whatever works. So, did you enjoy the movie, and do you think you should have seen it sooner?
0: I very much enjoyed this movie, and I definitely should have seen it a lot sooner, because I've had it on my list forever, but I was just like, I got lazy, I didn't want to get into the mood or watch it or whatever. I much more, like watch shorter movies, but this one I really should have watched sooner, because I, I love like fa- fantasy elements in like stories, like kind of like, how do you say, fantasy realism is that, I forgot the genre name, but do you know what I mean?
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, so I mean, now that you've seen this, uh do you feel like do you feel like it's kind of like maybe altering your uh your viewing habits?
0: yeah, I am definitely going to consider watching more foreign language movies because I, a lot of the movies on the list are like American classics and American like made not a lot of them are foreign foreign films, even though I know the value of foreign films, so like I'm definitely going to change my viewing habits and add more foreign films into my list.
1: Good idea. Good good thinking. I've been into foreign films for a long time. I, in the early 2000s I was importing DVDs so I could finally I could see Battle Royale. Oh, like wow. a decade before it ever came out here oh yeah <laughs> and i got into the habit of just like i'll I'll import this because i don't know when it's coming out in the u.s or if it's going to come out in the u.s and i just got into the habit of that so subtitles don't really bother me sometimes having to fumble through um, menus that are in other languages that gets to be tricky but you can pretty much guess your way through it
0: so actually it reminds me i have a friend who's going to be a guest on this podcast um soon She said, like before, like anime got really big in in the U.S. She would have had to import Shonen Jump from Japan, so she would actually like get on the different websites to like actually import it before you could actually just buy it from the U.S. I'm like, yo, that struggle back then must have been really rough on you, older millennials. I I don't I don't understand it now. I can't
1: relate. Uh, yeah, like the 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 struggle was real. Like we had, we could go to like Suncoast Video, and they'd have a rack of anime and imported Hong Kong movies, and that became like, oh cool, I'll I'll buy three episodes of Street <laughs> Fighter Two V for like thirty bucks. That's like, oh god, the things we put up with before. Oh, but man. it was it was cool because there was always that. Moment where you stumble onto a cool thing, like you stumble onto anime, or you stumble onto a Hong Kong action movie, and you just go down that rabbit hole. Yeah, you know, you see, you see Rumble in the Bronx, and suddenly, like, let's just start digging back into the filmography. And you have these like weird Hong Kong imported DVDs, not not DVDs and VHS, where the Mandarin and the English subtitles are burned in, and just looks the the picture is awful, the sound is bad, but you still watch it anyway. Now, you know, it's it's cool because you have actual nice versions of these movies coming out you have them coming out on blu-ray they'll they have alternate cuts showing up they'll have <laughs> extra features i'll have they'll as a godzilla fan you had the crappy like pan and scan versions. Now I can go out and get a widescreen Blu-ray with nice subtitles and like stereo mixed original Japanese audio and commentary tracks. It's been really cool kind of getting to see that from the the breadcrumbs that we used to get. And now we just get so much and you, you don't take it for granted because you know what the struggle was.
0: Okay, we've reached the end of our discussion, James. Thank you so much for being here. Before we go, do you want to tell me were the movies a hit or a miss with you?
1: Uh, well, I'd say Swiss Army Man was it was a hit, but it's more of like a I don't know like a base hit. Whereas Pan's Labyrinth was very much grand slam. Yeah, that 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 one's way out in the stands. It's amazing film.
0: Yeah, I can differentiate you a little bit. I think I've I've mentioned during the episode. Uh, I didn't really care for a Swiss Army Man. So that one for me was a miss. And for Pan's Labyrinth, that was like right on target. That was a hit for me. That's, that was like Robin Hood's arrow going through another arrow onto the target hit for me. So where can our listeners find you on social media, James?
1: Uh, So I'm a really creative person. So you can find me on Facebook at James Couchet. That's C-O-U-C-H-E. And you can also find me on YouTube at James Couchet, uh, where I've been Basically I've been putting my short films on there since uh two thousand five. So I've been I've been there since the start. You'd think I'd be more popular by now.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, hopefully. Thank you for listening to the Hitlist Podcast. If you like this episode, please consider giving us five stars and leaving a review. It really does help. You can also follow us on Facebook at the Hitlist Podcast and Instagram at the underscore Hitlist underscore Podcast. Until next time, cross off a new film from your list. Hello, everyone. If you made it this far. Thank you so much. This section right here will be my show notes. It won't be like this in the future. I won't place it right after the ending. I just forgot to add this part in during the editing process. So the show notes are just a couple of notes from the episode. I felt needed some more clarification, if you know what I mean. And for this episode, there are two. So first one, James mentioned that the cinematographer for Pan's Labyrinth went on to do the cinematography for John Wick 2 and 3. This is incorrect. There's just some confusion over the facts. So the cinematographer for Pan's Labyrinth was Guillermo Navarro, and he's been a frequent collaborator of Guillermo del Toro with films such as Cronos, The Devil's Backbone, Hellboy 1 and 2, and Pacific Rim. The cinematographer for John Wick 2 and 3 was Dan Lawson, who has also collaborated with del Toro with the movies Crimson Peak and The Shape of Water. So that's the first footnote. note. First show note. The second show note I mentioned the Netflix show Wizards had not premiered yet. I recorded this episode back in June before it premiered, so that's why I mentioned it hadn't been premiered yet. Since then, I have seen this show and I highly recommend it. And I think it's the best of all of the Tales of Arcadia shows. And I'm really excited about the movie coming out next year that will wrap up the whole story, the whole universe, essentially. It'll be like the conclusion to the Tales of Arcadia. It's called Troll Hunters, Rise of the Titans for those of you who want to look into it. And that's it. Those are the show notes for episode two. Remember to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening. And until next time, cross off a new film from your list.